You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Okay, let me, let me invite you guys to join me in prayer. Bow your heads, please. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning and uh, to share life together a little bit to pray for one another's needs, and uh, to discover what your word says to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would um, come and and just be powerfully present among us. Lord, your word says that we're two or more are gathered together in your name, asking anything in your name, uh, that it would be given uh, to us and done for them, and that you would be then powerfully present. Um, your word also reminds us that where, um, um, where there are three strands together, that we are much stronger. So God, I pray that you would strengthen us as we uh, come together under the preaching of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal Jesus to us at a deeper level. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with me in my preaching, help my words to honor and glorify you. I pray, God, that you would purify my heart and my motives in these moments. I pray that you would remove my flesh, uh, my frustrations, or, um, or, or any of my um, um, little sin issues, really big sin issues, as I approach your word. And God, I pray that you would help me to speak what you would um, want to be preached this morning. I pray that you would reveal yourself to to us in the midst of my preaching, in the midst of our hearing from your word. I thank you for Luke's gospel. I thank you for this intent that Luke has to introduce us to Jesus so that we might know him and so that we might know for sure that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he will do and that he has done what he said he was going to do and, and, that, and that he continues to be all that he says he is for us. I pray, God, for anyone in the room here or hearing this message uh, that does not know you, and I pray, God, that you would use my words and this passage to draw people to you. Pray that you would paint a picture of Christ in our hearts. That you would magnify him like a magnifying glass magnifies things. Lord, I, I, I sense and I know that when we walk in here, when we sit down, that there are many things in our hearts and our souls, our minds, our lives that are magnified, that seem to loom larger than anything else in our lives. And sometimes that can just be sin or our struggle or our failures or our fears. And God, I pray that you would remove any of that, that you would minimize those things like a computer screen, which you would minimize those down to the bottom and that you would lift up Christ in our minds, that you would maximize him, that you would magnify him in our hearts, because I know that there is nothing um, else that, that we need other than to have a fresh picture of Christ, to come to know him um, in ways that maybe we didn't know Jesus when we walked in here. So help us, help us to know Jesus through this text in Jesus name and everybody said Luke chapter 22 verses 63 through 71 Luke chapter 22 verses 63 through 71 now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him 
They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then he said, and then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so here's the deal. When, when Luke wrote this portion of his gospel, and really if you step back, the entire theme of Luke's gospel is that we may know. So the theme of our message for today is knowing Jesus. And when Luke wrote his gospel, in the very first chapter, you'll see that he says, I'm writing to you that you may know for sure. It's a, it's a sense of having a rock-solid understanding in what you know to be true. He wants us to understand that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. So all throughout Luke, the reality is that everything Luke writes and says to us is flowing out of that theme of helping us to know for sure who Jesus is. And what he wanted in this passage was for us to have the opportunity to know Jesus. Not just to know about Him, but to actually know Him personally. To know Jesus as the one who suffered for us. He wants us to have the opportunity to know Jesus as the one who came to save us. He wants us to have the opportunity to know for sure that Jesus will return again in power and authority to judge the living and the dead. These are serious themes about Jesus. You can't ignore these things about Jesus. Because these are the things that Luke wants us to know for sure as he writes. If you and I approach this passage and we ignore these things about Jesus, we miss the opportunity to know who Jesus really is. He wanted us to know Jesus as the one and only God who has existed for all of eternity, past, present, and future. These are, these are important things. These are vital things for us to come to know and understand about Jesus. And not just know that like conceptually up in our minds like, oh, pastor gave me some really good information today and so I've got some great stuff in my brain. I can spout off a bunch of stuff about Jesus. Not just that, but something about that learning in your mind about who Jesus is must then translate six inches from your brain to your heart and then work its way out in the activity of your life. That, that's, that's the goal today is to help us to know Jesus in such a way that it's not like, oh, thank you for all the great information that I get, 
But it's got to translate from there. It's got to move from there to a heart whose desires and affections are being radically confronted and changed. And then when that happens, it translates out into the activity of your life. When you say that you know Jesus, it carries serious and important implications for your life. This Jesus that I proclaim to you today is the one and only eternal God who is full of, of perfect power and absolute authority. He came, came to save sinners as our suffering Savior. This is the Jesus that I proclaim to you today. And the question that I have to ask you and ask of myself is this. Do you know this Jesus or do you have a different picture of Jesus in your mind? Are you worshiping a false picture of who Jesus is? In what ways can the Holy Spirit take this passage and this picture of Jesus that Luke paints and, and affect our minds in such a way that our understanding of Jesus becomes magnified to the point that we become minimized and He becomes greater in, not just in our minds and in our hearts, but through our lives, through the activity of our lives, through the way that you live your life. That's, that's the big goal this morning. And thank God for His Spirit that He does that work of change, uh, because way beyond my ability, right? Do you know this Jesus? Do you know Jesus as the God who has existed from the beginning of all eternity? There is, there is no beginning, right, of eternity. Do you know this Jesus who has existed for all of eternity? Do you know Him? And then what implications does that have on the way that you think and the way that you desire and the way that you behave? If you say you know that Jesus. Do you know Jesus as a supreme judge? who is more powerful, more just than any other judge in all of existence. Do you know him that way? Have you spent time letting that understanding and knowledge of Christ affect you deeply? He is a judge, a great and just and authoritative and righteous judge who has existed for all of eternity. He's greater than any other judge who's ever existed. Do you know Him as your Savior? Do you know Jesus as your Savior who is worthy of your trust and obedience? Listen, when you say, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus, then that means that you then naturally have to move from a place of disobedience and warfare and rebellion against God to a place of submission and surrender and holiness. Because this is what Jesus does in your life, which means that you begin to trust Him and obey Him. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, anyone who claims to love me does what I tell them to do. Spend some time letting that passage do its work on your heart the next time you try to make peace with your sin and war against God instead of walking in peace with God and war against sin. Follow that? Is this the Jesus that you know? Jesus was a polarizing figure. We see this picture of Jesus 
blue-eyed, blonde hair, sitting on a stump, coke in his hand, welcoming babies. We see this soft, gentle, patient, would never say anything harsh kind of Jesus. We see a Jesus in our minds that is okay with our sin because we're all sinners. We see a Jesus in our minds oftentimes who is like more of this fatherly type, passive, who ignores things in our lives that we want him to ignore because we've ignored it for so long. That's the Jesus we have in our minds. Not the Jesus who came to make war against sin by giving his life at a cross so that sinners could be saved and changed. I mean, when Jesus goes to the cross and, and lets his blood flow freely and gives himself as a sacrifice for us. There is an implication upon our lives when that happens, when we say we believe. He's a polarizing figure. Polarizing. He doesn't say, you can just come to me as you are and continue to stay the same. Jesus says, when you come to me as you are, I will change you and you'll be radically different. Your fears will change. What you trust in begins to change. The desires of your heart begin to change. The activity of your life begins to change. Is this the Jesus that you know? Do you know the Jesus of this passage who is the only God who is acquainted intimately with suffering? Think about Christ in His suffering. He was acquainted intimately with suffering. He suffered horrendously. Horrendously He suffered do you know this Jesus? That's really the first question. Point number one. Do you know Jesus, the suffering captive? When you think about Jesus, do you know him this way? See, Jesus is acquainted intimately with your suffering because he too suffered horrendously. Luke tells us that after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. And they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Jesus is intimately acquainted with suffering because he too suffered horrendously. I've repeated myself three times. Why? Why? So that you would get it, right? So that you would remember it. I don't repeat myself because I don't want us to hear it. I repeat myself because I want us to hear this. I repeat myself because I need things repeated to me. I need to be reminded over and over and over again that in my suffering, in the midst of my suffering, I can, I can, I can find comfort in the truth that Jesus also suffered. And that he suffered horrendously. I need that comfort. You and I both need that comfort. Because if we do not find comfort in the truth that Christ suffered horrendously, guess what you'll do? If you don't find comfort there, you'll find comfort somewhere else. Comfort in the arms of a lover. Comfort in the needle in your vein. Comfort in the, in the bottle that you throw back. Comfort in the porn that you watch on, on the computer screen. Comfort in all the knowledge that you jam into your brain. You'll find comfort in so many places other than Christ if you don't rest in the comfort that He too suffered. Think about that. 
That's why this is important. That's why, I'm, that's why, that's why I repeat myself. I, I know. I know because I walk it. I know because the Bible teaches us this. I know because this is all of human experience, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Think with me for a minute about the suffering that Jesus faces in this passage. Think about the suffering that Jesus endured before he was even nailed to the cross. Because that's where we're at, right? Imagine the emotional fear. Think about the intentionality and the choice of these words. The emotional fear that would have filled him in the middle and in the midst of being locked in chains by people who should have been your friends. Think about that emotional pain. I'm going to turn my mic off so I don't have to deal with that humming the entire time. I'll just yell at you. I'm yelling already, right? <laughs> imagine the, imagine the, the physical pain of being beaten by, by people who should have been a safe family for you. Of being abused and beaten by people who should have been a family of safety. Imagine that. Imagine that pain, that fear. Imagine the psychological and the emotional wounding from being verbally abused by people speaking words of shame and mockery against you. Instead, instead of speaking words of love and encouragement to you. Imagine, this is what Jesus went through. In this short verse that we find it so easy to read and then move right on past, right? My job in these moments is to cause us to slow down and soak in this. This is what Jesus is suffering on behalf of you and I. Imagine, imagine the disorientation. The disorientation of being unable to see because someone has blindfolded you. Imagine all of this and more. All of this horrific suffering and more happening to Jesus, the suffering captive. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus that Luke wants us to know. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your suffering, do you, do you wonder why you've ever, ever, ever wonder why you suffered the way you have? Ever asked that question? Why have I suffered this way? You feel like you're all alone in your suffering? Feel like you're, I'm the only one who suffers this way. Nobody else has suffered like me. You ever feel that way? Wouldn't want to give voice to that because it would feel or seem selfish, wouldn't it? And even the things that we don't give voice to, we, we think oftentimes inside, right? I'm the only one who has suffered this way. I'm, I'm alone in my suffering. Let me ask you, what do you turn to? What do you turn to or set your heart upon to ease that suffering? When you feel the pain of suffering in your life, loneliness, fear, insecurity, being disoriented, when you face that kind of, where do you turn? 
And what do you set your heart upon in those moments to ease your suffering, to ease your pain? Do you turn to a drug or a relationship or a new possession or a new conquest or the next sexual escapade or, or the pursuit of money or an opportunity to spend money that you don't have or, or a new romance? So Jesus didn't pursue any of those things. Jesus did not pursue... And listen, this isn't just one of those messages where you're like, well, this is what Jesus was like, so I've got to be just like him. Although there's truth in that statement. Like, we, we should model Christ. We should be like him if we call ourselves Christians. Christ followers means that we are being transformed, changed, growing into the likeness of Christ. Becoming like him. There's truth in that. There's truth in that. But that is not primarily the thrust or the drive of this message. The thrust or the drive of this message is more like, if you say you know him, then you will become more like him. If you actually know him. The proof will be in the pudding. The evidence will be there, right? So when you face suffering, are you becoming more like Christ where you are beginning to resist those things that you once turned to to ease your pain? Jesus didn't pursue any of those things that we often pursue because His goal was not to ease his own suffering. His goal was to ease the suffering of those who follow him and trust in him. His goal was the cross. His goal was the cross where he suffered horrendously for you and for me. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus, the one and only eternal God who is full of complete power and absolute authority who came to save sinners by giving His life as a suffering Savior for them. Do you know Him? Question number two is do you know Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? Do you know Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? We unpacked Jesus, the suffering captive. Now we turn to verses 66 through 68, and we, we meet Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Is it okay if I turn my mic back on now? I'm going to try. I don't know if I can yell like this the rest of the day. <laughs> I'm turning back on. All right. No, it's just that my, 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 my voice will just give out. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably just keep yelling even with my mic on anyways. But <laughs> uh, do you know Jesus? Man, I love a little banter back and forth. You guys rock. It's good. If you guys start going like, amen, brother, I'll really get after it. Um, <laughs> oh, number two, number two. All right, do, do you know Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, verses 66 through 68, right? Now here's the deal. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only Savior who's worthy of your trust and your obedience. Because why? Because why? Because He came and gave His life as a ransom to save you from the penalty. 
And the power and the presence of your sin. Had somebody tell me recently that you guys talk about sin too much in your church. Well then what you're telling me is that we talk about Jesus too much and I'm happy to have that reputation. Why do I say that? Because when you talk about sin, you must talk about the Jesus who is the Savior who came to set us free from not only the presence but also the power and also the penalty of sin. Can somebody say amen to that, right? Yeah, yeah good. Good. See, see, you got to talk about this up because it's in the Bible, right? You can't skirt around that issue and you can't walk away from it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Like, I get uncomfortable when I think about these things because my natural propensity and tensity... Wow, that isn't even a word. <laughs> tendency. Tendency. Thank you. My natural propensity and tendency... I did it again. <laughs> tendency... Tendency, there it is. My natural propensity and tendency is to what? Love my sin and hate Jesus. That's my natural. That's where I'm at naturally. Love my sin, hate Jesus. Dress up my sin, make it look all pretty and beautiful, and love it. And live for that instead of Jesus. Live for that instead of Jesus. And actually then make war against Jesus and beat him. Right? That's what happens in this passage, and that's our tendency naturally. And what Luke wants us to do is to come to know Jesus, our Savior, the only one who is worthy of our trust and our obedience. Because when He came, He came to die at a cross to bust through the power of sin, the presence of sin, and the penalty of sin. Luke tells us that when day came, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, Man, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. This story is absolutely stunning. You might be like, Well, I think it's stunning now because you said so, and you're so fired up and jacked up about it, right? It's stunning. It's stunning because Jesus, who is the Christ, which means Messiah, and Savior. He's being forced to go through this series of formal and legal trials and hearings that will eventually lead to him being unlawfully convicted. Think about it. Unlawfully convicted of false charges and then that will then lead to his own execution by a horrific tool of torture. That's what's happening. It's a double set of trials that's taking place. He will face a set of legal charges and hearings and trials in front of his own people, the Jews. Okay, his own people, his own family will take him and do this to him first. And once they have a set of charges trumped up against him, they will then take him from their own circle and they will turn him over into the hands of the Romans. Of people that are that he doesn't even know. So what we're seeing is is him in front of some of his very own people. Think about this for a minute. Jesus' enemies had propped him up in their little kangaroo court, where where they had put God the Son on trial with his creation, his created beings acting like the sheriff. The judge, the jury, and the prosecuting attorney. This is what was taking place. Stunning. 
stunning. And the strategy that they had, the strategy that these guys had was to try to get Jesus to incriminate himself by asking him all sorts of questions about who he is. Asking him, are you in fact the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? And Jesus' response, think about Jesus' response that we're looking at. Jesus' response is sheer genius on his part. Because his response unveils the hypocrisy and the unbelief and the hostility of this crowd that held him captive. Think about Jesus' answer this way. Let me rephrase it this way. Jesus' answer to the question of his enemies is basically, it's an indictment. It's an indictment of their underlying motives. Jesus is calling out their underlying motives. He says this. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. They ask him the question. And he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Here's what he's saying. It would be a little confusing, right? At first glance, here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I've already told you all along that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. I've already told you this. The real issue here is that you won't accept or believe that answer as a valid answer. And if I ask you who you believe I am, you refuse to answer the question. Stop right there. That's the indictment. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Take that question and let it blow up into a bunch of other questions. What has Jesus instructed you to do? How has Jesus instructed you to live? Who has Jesus been to you? How will you answer those questions? At what point do you get to that place where you refuse to answer the question? It is at that place where you are living in unbelief. Are you tracking with me? It is that place when you begin to get uncomfortable about asking the question about Jesus. It is at that place where you're beginning to live in unbelief and disobedience. You're being confronted with that. It's what Jesus is doing is confronting these people for their hypocrisy, their unbelief, and their hostility against Him. Jesus is preaching. His teaching, all of his miracles. Man, these things weren't done in a box. They weren't done in a box somewhere. His life was an open book for everyone to examine. He wasn't shy about referring to himself as the Christ, the Messiah, or the Savior. He was, he was about to give his life as the payment for the sins of all who would come to trust in him. The real problem here was not Jesus. Oftentimes, we like to begin to think that Jesus is the real problem. Now, we would never admit this, right? Deep down inside, we begin to think Jesus is the problem. And Jesus asked too much of me. Jesus asked me to carry my cross and walk away from my sin and walk away from those things that are damaging and destructive. I don't want to. I love those things. Right? We begin to think that Jesus is the problem, not us. And that was what happened here. The real problem here is the people that should have known him. Listen, the people that should have known him didn't know him at all. They claimed to know God. They claimed to know Him, but they rejected Jesus as their Savior. 
They claimed to know God, but they rejected Him. The very people who needed a Savior that should have recognized Him immediately, they were the ones who actually rejected Him. Human beings that were created in the image of God, that were called to represent God and mirror God to others around them, who were broken by sin, who were, who were in deep need of a Savior. It is these people, us. It's us, right? This is us. We actually put our Savior on trial for claiming to be our Savior. Why would I need a Savior? Every time I turn to something else to save me, to set me free from my suffering, I'm putting Jesus back on trial again. And I'm simply saying to Him, you're not good enough for me. This thing or this person or that pursuit, that's better than you. That's what I'm doing. That's what you and I do. We put Jesus back on trial again and we say, I am your creation, but I don't, I don't represent you. I don't want you. I want this instead. We put him on trial. It's, it's, this is what we do. This is, why, this is why the picture of Jesus is so good. How gracious is this picture that Jesus would endure this for, for the people that were at war against him. Jesus endured this for you and he continues to have endured that for you every time you and I turn away from him in unbelief and disobedience and in hostility. It's grace. That's grace. That's mercy. It's such a good picture. <sighs> These people in this passage, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know Him as the Christ, the Messiah, or the Savior. So they sat over Him in public court like judge, jury, and executioner. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, He was willing to give His life as a ransom, as a payment to save us sinners from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. In the midst of your battle with sin, if you're willing to go there for a minute and think about this, if you're not sitting where you're at, sitting where you're at, ignoring and rejecting what you're hearing. Don't you think about your battle with sin for a moment? Are you making peace with your sin? Rather than war against it, war is a violent thing. War is an awake time thing. You must be awake to be making war. Are you making peace with your sin rather than war against it? Are you, are you walking out your salvation? You claim to be saved. You claim to know Christ. Are you walking out that salvation in fear and trembling? It's a fearful thing we walk. You're walking that out in fear and trembling. Or are you comfortable are you comfortable in your sin? Are you, are you the ruler and the judge of the courtroom of your heart? Or is Christ, is Christ ruling your heart? Are you magnified in your heart? Or is Christ magnified in your heart? Have you enlarged yourself in your heart to the extent that Christ has become minimized in your heart? Where are you at with that this morning? Jesus is the Christ, 
the Messiah, the Savior. He came to set you free from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Do you know this Jesus? Is this the Jesus that you know? Do you know Him, the one and only eternal God who is full of absolute power and perfect authority, who came to save sinners like you and I as a suffering Savior? Do you know this Jesus? That's the Jesus I proclaim to you today. It's the Jesus that Luke writes about today. Question number three, point number three is, do you know Jesus, the Son of Man? Verse 69 do you know Jesus, the Son of Man? Jesus is the only completely perfect, all-powerful, totally just ruler and judge of the universe. Those words are intentional. Jesus is the only completely perfect, all-powerful, totally just ruler and judge of the universe. This is the image. This is the picture that gets pulled out of the picture album when this title, Son of Man, gets used. Daniel used this title as well thousands of years earlier. Think about this. Proven. Actual, proven documentation, right? Still existing today. <clears throat> More documents for these passages in existence today. Original manuscripts than many of the history books that you and I read. <laughs> More. It really is. Daniel says this about Jesus thousands of years before it happens. I saw in the night visions... This is Daniel 7, 13-14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Who do you think the Ancient of Days was? God. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. So who was dominion given to? The one who was presented before. And glory and a kingdom that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the picture of Jesus. This picture of the Son of Man from Daniel. It is a picture of absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. Eternally just authority. Jesus isn't afraid to refer to himself by this name. And, in fact, if you go back and do your homework and read the other Gospels, what you'll see is that Jesus does this over a dozen times throughout the Gospels. Over a dozen times. Jesus is either A, a liar and a lunatic. He's either a liar and a lunatic. And he deserved to get murdered on that cross. Or... He is who He says He is, and He gave Himself on that cross. He can't be anything else but one or the other because of the claims that He made and the truth of the story. And that's what you and I get left to wrestle with. Is this true? Is this right? Is this real? Could this have really happened? Or is the dude a liar and a lunatic? Which one is it? Jesus, in this passage, what he's doing is boldly asserting his power, his authority, his deity. He is, in fact, claiming to be God when he says this. He says it this way. He says, from now on, 
From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Does God need anybody to be seated at His right hand? It's God. God doesn't need a lieutenant general, right? God doesn't need a second in command. Right? God doesn't need that. There's figurative language being used here to simply prove to us that Jesus is who He says He is. To claim the seat at the right hand of God with the title Son of Man is to claim total, perfect, powerful, and authoritative Godship. That's what Jesus is claiming. He's either a liar and a lunatic or he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, then you and I have got to deal with that. And it's got to affect not only our heads and what we know, but also our hearts and the desires that control us every day, which then translates out into the activity of our lives. Do you have a hunger for God's Word? If you don't, it means you're hungering for something else. And you're feasting on it rather than feasting on Christ. Do you have a desire to, to come and to meet with Jesus through prayer that, that drives you to your knees daily? If you don't, then you're finding rest somewhere else other than Christ. This, this thinking has to change the desire of your hearts, which then translates out into the activity of your hands. <coughs> When the world seems to be spinning out of control for you, what do you do? Where do you turn? What's your knee-jerk reaction? When you, when you get the horrible news, we've all gotten horrible news in here. When you get the horrible news, when things don't go the way you intended, have you ever been disappointed, had expectations that were here, to then have, have, have somebody not come through for you? When things don't go the way you intended and you feel disappointed, what do you do with that unmet expectation? When tragedy strikes, when you're, when you're powerless to change your circumstances, when you realize this is your lot in life and nothing's going to change that for the foreseeable future, short of an absolute miracle from God, which at this point maybe He hasn't given you that, what will you do? What do you do in those moments when it seems like the world and your life is spinning way out of control? What do you do? I let this truth wash over you as you think about that. Let this truth wash over you. In this passage, the picture that we catch of Christ is that He is in full control. And when they, when they came and when they came and arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't out of control. It wasn't like, oh crap, the plan's going to hell in a handbasket. That wasn't happening. This was all planned since before the foundations of the world, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, so that you and I could have the opportunity to become children of God. This was his plan. 
plan from way beyond an eternity past that this would happen. Jesus was in full control in the midst of this. And if he was in full control in the midst of that, when your life and your world feels like it is spinning out of control, what can you and I rest in? He is in control. He's the Son of Man. He's always been in control. Nothing can change that. Always been in control. And listen, if you go back and you study your Bibles, not just the Gospels, but you study the prophets, and you study the law, and you study all the way back through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, what you find is that all the language of the Bible, and now even Jesus Himself speaking about Himself, is pointing to this truth that Jesus is the Son of Man, the one the only, the eternal God who is full of absolute power, complete, perfect authority, and He came to save sinners like you and I. Do you know this Jesus? That's the question of the passage all the way through. Do you know this Jesus? And does your answer to that question, in fact, how does your answer to that question translate into the way that you think, the way that you are controlled by your desires, out into the activity of your life? Number four, final point, final question. Do you know Jesus, the Son of God? Do you know Jesus, the Son of God? Verses 70 through 71. Here's the deal. Jesus is the Son of God who has existed for all eternity. He's always been. It means that He is, in fact, God in the flesh. You think about this claim. This claim to be the Son of God. There is a sense in which you or I could say, and I'm a son of God or daughter of God, without capital letters. <laughs> the Son of God with the S not capitalized. It's not our title. This is... This would be a way of referencing that in, in, in language, linguistically. It would be a way of referencing our sonship or daughtership, even though there's not really a word, our adoption by God the Father. There's a way in which we relate to God that way. Jesus, on the other hand, is the Son of God in a capital letter S way. Which means that what He is doing is claiming deity, claiming Godship. <clears throat> and anyone who claims to be God is guilty of what? Anyone who claims to be God is guilty of what? Speak back to me. Tell me. Blasphemy, right? Blasphemy. <coughs> Blasphemy. How could you say that you are God? How could you say that? Unless, unless they are in fact God themselves. Jesus has already done this. This isn't the first time. He's already called himself God by claiming the title of Son of Man, really. It's a gentler way of claiming it. So making the leap to then Son of God, which is a little bit further, it's not such a huge leap to make. It's just, a, it's just really a, a continuation of that same statement with more force and more clarity, right? More definition. It's exactly the claim that Jesus' enemies have been waiting for. It's what they wanted to hear. They wanted Him to say this. They laid these questions out carefully. They've been fishing for this 
all along because they had their hearts set on murdering Jesus from the get-go and what they needed was an admission from him that he was God which would make him guilty of blasphemy if he was a liar and a lunatic. I can just imagine for a minute. I can imagine the silence in the room. I can imagine the silence in that courtroom after Jesus' last claim to be the Son of Man. Just think about this and imagine it with me for a minute. It would have been like a mic drop moment. I am the Son of Man. I will be seated at the right hand of God. I am God. That's what he's claiming. Mic drop moment. Silence. All of his enemies are like, holy smokes, he actually said it in front of our tribunal. He said it. It would have been a strategic moment. A strategic moment that only needed one further question of cross-examination. It would have sealed Jesus' fate. It would have sealed his fate among the guilty. And it would have resulted in a death sentence. And we know the story, right? If you're here, hopefully, maybe you know the story. This is what it resulted in. Courtroom would have been completely silent because Jesus has just claimed to be the Son of Man. And the next question would then seal that deal. And Luke tells us that they all said, they all said, Well, wait, wait, are you the Son of God? Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Well, you say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Court adjourned. Verdict read. Guilty. Gonna die. Question is, is, was he guilty? Was Jesus really guilty? Was he really guilty of claiming to be God when he really wasn't God? Or was he guilty of blasphemy? Or did his enemies only hear what they wanted to hear so they could render the verdict and move on with their vile, evil plan? And when Jesus' accusers asked him if he was the Son of God, he answered by saying, You say that I am. At first glance, this, this may seem kind of a strange way to answer a question, right? Kind of a funny response, but going back to a linguistic perspective and the way that we write and the way that they communicated in that day, from that point of view, Jesus is, is simply accepting the accusation. That's all he's doing. Jesus' accusers are saying, hey, oh, so, you, so you're the Son of God then, right? And Jesus answers, yeah, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. What you're saying about me is true. On a technicality, the words that you're saying are true. The way that you have described me, what you have said about me, they're true, sure. But the reality that we know about these people is that they had refused to be affected by that truth. They refused to be affected by that truth. What further testimony did they need? They heard it straight from his lips. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of Man. He claimed to be the Son of God. The one and only eternal God who was full of absolute power and perfect authority who came to save us sinners as a suffering Savior. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know Him? You have heard His testimony straight from His lips. The question is, do you believe it? It's the question I leave you with, is do you know this, 
Jesus. Final observations as our music team comes forward. What I've just preached to you and what I've just proclaimed to you is this. I've proclaimed to you that Jesus is the suffering captive. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And the question all along has been, do you know this Jesus? Have you suffered deeply painful things? Are you oblivious to your sin? Ignorant of your sin? Blind to your sin? Hiding your sin? Excusing your sin? Living in despair because of your sin? I don't know how you walked in here this morning. Does your life feel hopelessly out of control? Is that where you were at when you walked in this morning? Are you struggling to believe that Jesus is who He says He is? My intention is to bring good news to you. That's my intention. That's my call this morning to you. Is that you would hear the good news of the gospel. The reality is that the gospel means good news. And the gospel as good news comes and invades the darkness and the bad news of our lives. There's comfort in the suffering of Christ. Have you found comfort there? You can find renewal and hope and joy in Christ as your Messiah and your Savior. This is where you come to believe that He did what He says He did, that He is who He says He is, and that His life was poured out for you. This is where you come to trust in Him and then begin to walk in obedience to Him. When you hear that gospel message and your heart comes alive and you go, I don't know how, but somehow deep down inside, I believe. I trust. Your mind is renewed. Your heart is regenerated. It's restarted. You're given a brand new heart. Your old heart of stone is ripped out by the Holy Spirit. And a new heart of flesh is placed inside of you. And from that point forward, your life begins to beat by the light of Christ, who is the Son of Man, the one and only eternal God, who is full of power and authority, who came to save sinners as a suffering Savior. Do you know that, Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? Have you found renewal and hope and joy in Christ? You can rest in this truth. You can rest in this truth that this is and that He is who He says He is. Do you know Him? Let me pray. Father, thank You for our time in this passage and thank You for this picture of Christ, the Son of Man, the one and only eternal God, full of power, full of authority. The one who came to save us. The one who came to be our suffering Savior. Help us to know Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we, as we close our time in the Word today, we, we close in communion as always. Communion, worship, and prayer. And what I want to remind you is this, that, that communion, communion is for people who know Jesus. It's for people who have trusted in Him as the eternal God. It's for people who have trusted in Christ who is full of power 
and authority. It's for people who have, who have come to understand that they needed to be rescued and saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. It's for people who have come to trust in Him as our supreme suffering Savior. The question before you engage in communion is, do you know Him? That sounded like a gunshot, didn't it? You know what it reminds me? It reminds me of that. Anybody ever see that YouTube video where they're all standing and the preacher's doing exactly what I was just doing and suddenly the rapture happens and half the crowd is gone? That scared the heck out of me. I take a head count. The question I leave you with again is, is this the Jesus you know? If you're here, if you're here and you don't know him, you haven't come to trust in him, communion's not for you because it would just be a religious thing that you would be doing for no reason. So, so we ask that you come to know him and trust in him first. If that's you and you'd like to come to know him, we'd like to pray with you for that. So there'll be a few of us near the front to serve communion and pray with you. Um, if you have any needs. Whether that's you wanting to come to follow Christ for the first time and make that commitment, or whether that's you just having needs, this opportunity is here every week for you to be prayed for by somebody in our church. If you stay where you're at and you don't come and ask for prayer and get that, you, you can't complain. Does it make sense? That opportunity is here for you to receive prayer, to take communion, and to worship as we close. So let's do that. Thank you for letting me preach. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.